Good morning again. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Luke. Now, I have an advantage over pastor when it comes to preparing sermons. And that is time. See, when you preach once a month, um, in fact, this isn't any great sort of secret, tomorrow morning, I will look at the passage that I'll be preaching on next time. And so I've got a whole month to look through and to go, oh yeah, yeah, look at it this way, look at it that way, and prepare and and just think about things. Whereas Pastor, you know, he's got another one next week and another one next, it it can be a bit bit of pressure. So I've been looking at this, this passage, it's Luke chapter 11, and it's the first four verses of Luke chapter 11. Uh, But there is one, if you like, not a disadvantage, but there is one penalty you pay for doing that. And that is that the Lord keeps hammering you with this message, you know, uh, until you get to preach it. Every time I look at it, it's again the Lord saying, hang on, you know, you you haven't really understood this yourself yet. Uh, You've just got to get back and, and, and have some more looking and understanding at it. So... Luke chapter 11, and it came to pass that as he was praying, good place to stop and open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask now your blessing upon this time. Open our hearts and our eyes and our ears, Lord, that we might understand your message, your word and your teaching. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. Now, let's just, you you, you know where we're going here, but just hang on for a minute. Just stop for a second. It said here, the, the disciple says, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples to pray. How many prayers of John the Baptist are recorded in Scripture? None. Zip. Nothing. Not one. It's very interesting about John that we know less about him than we think we do. We think we know all about John the Baptist, but we don't. We know some things about him. We know that he was a man of prayer, but we don't know anything about what he prayed. We don't have one of his prayers recorded. Not one. Now, it says of John the Baptist, in John chapter 10 verse 41, that he did no miracles. It's also recorded earlier in the book of Luke, in chapter 7, verse 28, that our Lord said of John the Baptist that there has not been one born of woman greater than John the Baptist. That's a pretty big, uh, big compliment. That's a, that's a pretty big sort of rap on someone to say, nobody born of woman is better than this guy. He's the top. He's as good as it gets. And yet he did not one miracle. 
Now here's this. The greatest prophet and the greatest preacher known to man to this point in time till our Lord came himself did not one miracle. But he was a man of prayer. Do you want to be great and do great things for God? Do you want to be someone who, 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 who people say, that was a good person. That was a person who really rates. You can do it without miracles. But you can't do it without prayer. It can't be done. You can be, you could, it's possible that God could raise up someone as great as John the Baptist who never does a miracle, but I can guarantee they will be a person of prayer. So, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. Now, there were plenty of formal prayers in the Jewish teaching at this time. Plenty of, of, of formal prayers. Um, there were formal blessings. Now, now and, and, and some of these are beautiful. I don't know if you've ever heard it in, in English. I've heard it a couple of times in Hebrew. Uh, but if you've ever heard the Kaddish, the prayer for the dead, that is just... It's heartrending. So there were some great formal prayers. There were blessings, formal blessings. Um, like before a meal, they would say, Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth and, created, and creates the fruit of the vine. As a grace before a meal, nothing wrong with that. It's great. But the problem was these formal prayers had become just things they did. And our Lord criticises this attitude in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 7. He says, don't use endless repetitions and just reciting off prayers like the heathen do. Because they think, the more they talk, the more God listens. You know, they think that because they say it lots of times, God will take notice of it. It is, without a doubt, the greatest shame and sorrow that you can come across that this very next passage, which was to teach us the way to pray, has become in the hands of some parts of Christendom Nothing more than vain formal repetition. Even worse, even worse, if you do something wrong and go to a Catholic priest and ask for absolution and then he will give you a penance. And one of the things you may have to do is to recite so many Our Fathers. In other words, your punishment is to pray. How twisted, how perverted of the truth of prayer can it be that they have turned prayer from a privilege to a punishment? 
Now, the next few verses contain 67 words. There are no words over nine letters and there's only one of them. It's simple. This passage on prayer is simple and easy to understand. It is not that difficult. As one of my friends would say, it's not rocket surgery. You know, it's, it's not hard to understand. It's interesting, though, that it's a little different to where we find it in Matthew. Most people are more familiar with the passage in Matthew. Now, this has led some great learned people who have more learning than sense to say, well, clearly one of these passages must be wrong because if they're not exactly the same, then then one of the, either Matthew or Luke has got it wrong. I would put it to you that it's far more likely that our Lord gave this teaching twice. And that's why it's slightly different. That in Matthew, you'll find he speaks this in the middle of a sermon. And it's on his own, uh, it's sort of like his own idea. He says, now I'm going to teach you something about prayer. Here, one of his disciples has come up to him and said, Lord, can you explain to us how we should pray properly? And so he goes over the same material again. That's why the two passages are slightly different. Because he said it twice. No great need for a recension or a declination or whatever they call it, where somebody is supposed to have gotten in and chopped and changed scripture. No, he simply said it twice and that's why it's slightly different. So, this occasion, one of our disciples comes to him and says, Lord, teach us to pray. There's a common saying, you know, be very careful what you wish for. Be very careful what you wish for. Be very, very careful what you pray for. And be very, very, very careful what you ask God for. Because you just might get it. And not be ready for it. So, are you willing, at this point in your Christian life, to say, Lord, teach me to pray? Are you, are you prepared for what that might mean? Are you willing to to venture forth in this point and say, Lord, teach me to pray? Because there is a lot of things here. I said that this was a simple passage. Beware the simple passages of Scripture. This is a passage which a child can understand and yet it is a passage which will bamboozle theologians. It is so shallow a lamb can wade in it. It is so deep it will drown an elephant because there are so many profound truths here. First of all, verse 2. And he said unto them, when ye pray. Okay, stop right there. When ye pray. Ye, plural. Oh. There is already a recognition of community here. 
Because the next word is our. Plural. The Lord's Prayer does not start out, my Father. It starts out, our Father. There is a recognition immediately here, you're part of a group. You're part of a family. That's the definition. One of the simple definitions of a family is a group of people with the same parents. Well, there you go. Our Father. We're a group of people with the same parent. We have our Father and we are together in this. Our Father. There is a new relationship in that group. And first of all, let me say there is no point in praying this if he's not your father. If he's not your Lord and your Saviour. This prayer does no good for anybody who is not a Christian. If you're not born again, he's not your father. You've got no relationship. It's simple to understand the way this works. Now, I remember when, when I would go shopping with my, my kids. Now, a lot of people hate going shopping with their kids. I used to love it. You know, little tackers, and, and they were pretty good kids, and they didn't cause much fuss and everything, so we'd go shopping together. And I would go off shopping, and sometimes they'd ask for something. And sometimes they get it. They got pretty cunning and they knew when to ask and when not to. When to annoy dad and when to leave him alone. But they'd pick their time right and they'd come and they'd say, Oh, dad, can we have some of those? I'd go, Oh, yeah, okay, we get some of those. Right, beauty. Now, let's say they'd come and they'd said, uh, Can we have a, a packet of those? potato chips, you know, with the little packets inside and we'll have one each day to take to school. Okay. Sounds fair enough. We'll get a packet for that. Put in the thing. Now, if some little urchin comes up and been running around the, the, uh, the, the supermarket and annoying everybody and goes to me, hey, give me one of those. What am I going to say? Nah. Rack off, hairy legs. They're for my kids. Why? Because I've got no relationship with him. Not my child. Not my problem. Go away and annoy your own mum. Now that's a... What I'm trying to illustrate here is that if you start praying this prayer and think you're going to earn brownie points with God and you're not saved, barking up the wrong tree. You've got no relationship with God. You've got no basis to say our father because he's not your father. You're coming on entirely the wrong basis. Start with one like Lord be merciful to me a sinner and you might get a bit closer. But if you're not a Christian, it's not for you. Our father. Interesting. Our father which art in heaven. Well, in heaven? Well, who else are we praying to here? Why the in heaven bit? 
Fathers. You know, there's, there's God the Father. There's our biological Father, right? We even asked him a few things too, didn't we, for, for stuff, okay? There's the person who leads you to Christ and mentors you as a young Christian. They are referred to in passages of Scripture as your Father in Christ. There is Abraham, who is the father of all those who believe. So I guess they're our forefathers. I'm sorry, but I had to put that in. <laughs> but this is our Father which is in heaven. We're blocking out the other people. We're focusing in on our Father in heaven. It's a relationship which is different. The Jews, now remember that, 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 uh, that blessing for the meal that I, I read out? And it, it commenced, Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe. That's one relationship. It doesn't start out our father. Because the Jewish people did not have this relationship with God as their father, their heavenly father. They knew him as their Lord. They knew him as their master. They knew him as king of the universe. They knew him as the ruler over Israel. But they didn't know him as their father. And therefore, this is a new relationship that Jesus is teaching his disciples here. Our father, which, which art in heaven. Our father is in heaven. Isn't that wonderful? To know that our, we have a heavenly father. A special different sort of relationship. Secondly, then it says, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed means holy. Okay? Hallowed's just another name for, word for holy. Hallowed or holy be your name. Holy. Listen. Just because he's your heavenly father, never lose respect. Sometimes I hear people pray in some of the, shall we say, more, in, more, in, more um, enthusiastic churches that I've been to. And I think you're losing respect for your heavenly father here. We should never do that. Holy is his name. He is a holy, just God. His name is holy because he is holy. What does it mean to be holy? What does it mean to be holy? Holy, I, I found, was defined as a self-affirming moral purity. That's an interesting bunch of words to put together. But the point it's getting at is that God is holy because he's holy. It's self-affirming. God does not need anything else to make him holy. He is because he is. He makes other things holy because he comes in contact with them. It never works the other way. God is holy just because he is. Now it's interesting that he is holy and still our father. And that is only possible through the work of Christ, through the atonement. I have put it 
to uh, uh, some Muslim people, and, and I'm still waiting for an answer. They're welcome to get back to me any time. That they say, Allah is the compassionate. Allah is the merciful. He is also the just. And I say to them, well, if he lets me into heaven, he's not just. And if he keeps me out, he's not compassionate. And they get a puzzled look on their face and change change the conversation. But here we have a holy and a just God who is compassionate and becomes our father because of the work of Christ and the sacrifice which he made for us. There's an awful lot of theology in the first couple of words of this prayer. Our father is in heaven, he's holy, and it's because of the work of Christ that he can be that. Then it says... Thy kingdom come. Oh. Then it defines it. It explains what does it mean when God's kingdom comes. Well, when God's kingdom comes, it means his will will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Or as it is in heaven, so in earth. That's the definition of his kingdom coming. Oh, that's easy. Okay, it gets hard, hard going for Calvinists here. Really tough ploughing for Calvinists. Because does that mean that right now God's will is not being done? Oh, okay. So we're saying now that the God of the universe who can control all things and directs all things according to the good pleasure of his will, his will isn't being done. Not on earth. Um. And if his will isn't being done, what's the point of praying? I didn't say this was going to be easy to understand. I said it was simple to read with only 67 words, but I didn't say it was going to be easy to understand. So we have a God who can do all things and yet his will is being resisted on earth. How is it? That the God who can control the universe, the God who directs the planets in space, the God who can do anything, finds his will not being done. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says that God is not willing that any should perish. And yet, daily, daily, Thousands and thousands of people, a few, a week and a day ago, probably 25,000 people died in a few minutes. Most of those went into a hopeless, helpless, heartless eternity with no chance of, of ever seeing God. And yet it says that God is not willing that any of those should have perished. If you really want to get sort of stuck into this, I suggest you enrol in Victoria Baptist Bible College and look for a course on the permissive directive, permissive and directive will of God. That will tie you up for probably a year or two and you still won't understand it. 
but it will, it will keep you busy. What do we know about this? We know that there are some things God wants, but he will not enforce. Yeah. God wants people to be saved, but he won't make them be saved. As one person put it, God is a gentleman and will not stay where he is not wanted. These people do not want God in their life. They do not want to have anything to do with God. And so he grants them their wish. And for all eternity they will have no contact with God. Be careful what you wish for. He wants to welcome, to receive, to rescue But his will is that he will not force himself on anyone. In one of, in a a movie I saw a while ago, and it, it, it had just a little passage which was so touching. A man was talking to God and he said, God, how do you make someone love you without breaking their will? And God said, yeah, that's the real trick, isn't it? How do you make someone love you without breaking their will? So God elects and chooses to let his will not be done. So that people come to him voluntarily. Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come. There will be a time on earth when God's will is done here as it's done in heaven. That is the time when Jesus will return for us and then with us and set up his kingdom. If you've been listening, when pastor's been preaching, we've dealt with all that through the book of Revelation. Thy kingdom come. Amen. The last book, the last chapter of the last book in the Bible has the words, Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen. Thy kingdom come. Take me out of here. I'm ready to go. I want to go home. I want to go home with my Saviour. And any day he comes to take us with him is fine by me. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. As in heaven, so in earth. Give us day by day our daily bread. Oh, we don't like this one. We don't like this. You know why? Because we want to be able to say, Oh, I've got enough for for bread for today and for tomorrow and the next day and some in the freezer, so I'm right. I don't need to keep coming to God to ask for provision. Yet he says, no, every day come to God and ask for your daily provision. Why? You know, we're we're so like the children of Israel. Remember when they had the manna fall down from heaven? And they're told every morning you go out and you collect it. Collect just enough for the day. But there were some people there, just like us, who said, no, 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 
I'll collect a bit extra just in case there's not any tomorrow. What happened? It stank. Bread worms and stank. It went off overnight. The other thing is, we want to do it ourselves. We want to say, I did this. I earned my daily bread. And so often we'll, we'll sort of say, well, you know, to say, give me my daily bread, that, that's implying that I don't work for it. Well, I work hard. I go out each day and I work hard for my daily bread. Oh, yeah? Who gave you the skills to keep that job? Oh. Who kept you safe there and back so you didn't wipe yourself out under a Kenworth on the way? Oh, give us each day our daily bread. Lord, keep us safe. Keep us in, in employment. If you're saying, Lord, keep me employed. Lord, keep me safe as I travel. Lord, give me a good reputation with my boss. You know what you're saying? Lord, give me each day my daily bread. That's what you're saying. And you're saying it, look, and, and look, it, we'll read this one out because it's a, it's a, a classic. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 17. And thou say, or verse 16, who fed thee in the wilderness with manna which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee and he might prove thee to do thee good at thy latter end. And thou say in thy heart, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant which he swore, with, swore unto thy fathers as it is this day. Yeah. We so want to say, oh, my strength and my skill and my talent got me where I am. And God says, no, who gave you that skill and that talent and that power and that cleverness? And remember... To say, give us this day our daily bread. Now it says today. Give us day by day. Matthew chapter 6 verse 34 says, Take no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for itself. Sufficient unto each day is the evil thereof. Sufficient under each day is also the provision thereof. You have enough things to worry about today. Take no thought for tomorrow. God shall supply you tomorrow. Worry puts more people in, in uh, ulcer surgery and early graves than just about anything else. Worry, you know, worry is a sin. You know that? Worry is a sin because you're saying God can't look after me. So I better worry about how I can do it myself. God says, take no thought for the morrow. 
but give us each day our daily bread. What? Why else would God be wanting us to say, give it to me. Lord, give me today. God wants you to remember where it's coming from. And he wants to teach you a little bit of manners too. To say not just please, but thank you. When you say, Lord, today, give me my daily bread and give me the, the, the good the, 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 the work and, and the opportunity and the safety. And Lord, thank you for yesterday when I got it. When I was kept safe and kept employed and kept looked after. A little manners is something that is so important these days. Give us day by day our daily bread. Oh, verse 4. And forgive us our sins. You know what this presupposes? Presupposes we need forgiveness every day. Every day it, it, it says you are going to need to go to God and say, Sorry Lord, I screwed up. Forgive us our sins. You will need forgiveness every day. You get through a day without sinning, I will be surprised. I think the angels in heaven will be more surprised also. We always just so often make mistakes. We do things so wrong sometimes. And God says, come to me and say, I'm sorry, Lord. Forgive us our sins. But then it says something really interesting. For we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. Is this saying that forgiveness from God is conditional? That if you don't forgive other people, God won't forgive your sins and he'll send you to hell? No, that doesn't, that doesn't sound right. I'll make two points here. One, if you harbour an unforgiving heart, if you harbour a heart that says, I won't forgive this person for what they've done, but I'll sit on this grudge and I'll nurture it and let it grow and fester for a while, you really need to look whether you've been forgiven your sins at all. That's the sort of attitude the unsaved have. That's not the attitude a child of God should be having. There's another point here too. Forgive us our sins, we also forgive those who, who, who are indebted to us. You know, it's if you want to get into your Greek thingies here, when it's, you can see it in English. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. They're two different words, different words in English and they're different words in Greek. Have you ever seen people rejoicing over the misfortune of others? I can't pronounce it, but there's a big, long German word for it. It means to rejoice over the misfortune in others. And, and something goes wrong for somebody and they go, yes, yeah, serves them right. 
Especially if they're the injured party. They have an attitude of, ah, well, look at what's happening there. That'll teach them. God's doing that to make them learn a lesson. Because they're such rotten people and they did that to me and now they're getting punished for it. If you have that sort of attitude, be careful lest God treat you in the same manner. And say, well, if you won't listen, I might have to start to bring things into your life to make you listen when I tell you not to do something. You see, a hard, unforgiving heart is asking God to treat you the same way. Better that we say, Lord, I've forgiven them just the way you taught me to forgive, by forgiving me of the things I do. God forgives and forgets freely. If we look to make people hurt and grovel a bit about forgiveness, will not our Heavenly Father do the same to us? Not a good situation to be in. Forgive us our sins, Lord, and we forgive those who sin against us freely, openly, without reservation. Tell me, when were my sins paid for? On the cross. Were they forgiven? Yeah. I need to come and before God and appropriate that forgiveness, but it's already been done. The job's done already. When someone does something against you, you don't have to wait for them to ask for forgiveness. You can forgive them ahead of time. Hey, like God did. You can say, in your heart, it's forgiven. Let us be a forgiving people. A people who are only too ready and willing to forgive the things which are done against us. Because I've got news for you. Do you know who most of the time those people will be? Other Christians. They're going to be the ones who will rub you the wrong way. They're going to be the ones who will irritate you. They're going to be the ones who will say the things that will hurt. And you need to forgive them. Why? Because it comes right back to the start when we said, Our Father. You forgive them because they're family. Or the need of forgiveness. And lead us not into temptation. Oh, that's another curly one here. Does that mean that God leads us into temptation? Because if we're asking him not to lead us into temptation, does that mean that sometimes he does? James, chapter 1, verse 13.
wrong side. James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Lead us not into temptation. Now, I've said before that when you get to preach, because I'm up here looking, you get to see things that sometimes you don't see because you'll look up looking this way. And one of the things you notice is people who are sitting closer together than they really need to and sharing hymn books when there's lots of spare hymn books around. And you go, hmm. Now, all you ladies here, all the girls, they know all about this, right? But I, I, I might need to clue some of the fellas in here who are, you know, getting, might not be aware of what's happening to them. The fluttering eyelashes, the coy smiles, and the sitting how close you can without being too close, it's called flirting. And it's not that bad. In fact, as I remember, it's quite fun. But it's fun to do it with boys and girls. It's not fun to do it with sin. Seeing how close you can get before you get too close. Letting yourself be led into temptation. We are told don't flirt with sin, flee from it. And pray to our Heavenly Father that He leads us not into temptation. Because let me tell you, we're weak. I'm weak. I really am. I, someone said to me, I made a comment that I just don't trust people. And they said, that's a, that's a bit harsh. What, you, you don't trust yourself? I said, I trust myself least of all. We're weak. We, if we flirt with sin, we will get caught. It will happen. We will fall in and then we'll be back to, Lord, forgive me. Don't flirt with it. Flee from it. And pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. I don't want to be in that position. The disciples came to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. Are we a praying church? Are we a praying people? When we look at the way we pray, both individually and corporately, do we go through, do we follow this sort of a pattern? Do we remember who we're praying to and do we spend some time in worship before we get down to the request section? We should. Do we remember to ask forgiveness? Now you want to have a look 
at some of the prayers, especially in the Old Testament. You have a look at Daniel's prayer. You have a look at Nehemiah's prayer. And look at the amount of time they spent confessing their own sin and the sin of their people. uh, Look, next week we're going to have prayer and praise time again. And I'm not telling people how to do it. But would it hurt if we spent a little time confessing the sins of our people? Our people, our church here, and asking God's forgiveness for it? Let us remember we're a family. We're a family bound together by a heavenly father. We're a family that sometimes rubs each other the wrong way. But we're a family who can come to him and say, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray to you as a group. Teach us to pray to you as a church. Teach us to pray as individuals. Are we a praying people? We said that the greatest person, John the Baptist, who had been a preacher up until this point in time when our Lord came, did no miracle. But he did pray. Do we want a church that achieves great things for God? Do we want to be people who achieve great things for God? We can do that without miracles, but we can't do it without prayer. Lord, teach us to pray. Thank you.